So, if you've been with us the past several weeks, um, we've been taking this month, the month of January, to, uh, to look at the, the topic of church leadership. And I've mentioned each week that uh, January 30th, we're going to have a congregational meeting here at the Avon Theater. And uh, part of that meeting will actually open up a season of nominations for the office of elder and deacon. And so I wanted to take this month to, to look at that. What do the scriptures teach about God's design and intention for his church? And uh, last week we looked at the office of elder, and this week we're going to look at the office of deacon. And so what I'd like to do is uh, read from Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 6, and then 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. You feel free to follow along there in your worship folder or just, uh, just listen. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word to us this morning about the second of the two offices that we have in the scriptures. The office of elder and the office of deacon. And we started looking at church leadership by looking at Ephesians chapter 4. And I just want to remind us again why we did that. And the reason we did that was because in that passage, the Apostle Paul teaches us that Jesus has given gifts to his people. And specific gifts. He's given specific gifts of the office of elder. And as we're going to see today... Also the office of deacon. And I want us to look at this morning, where did this office come from? What's its origin? And then we're going to look at its qualifications. Okay, so first of all, let's look here at its origin. And I want to look at Acts chapter 6 to uh, drill down into this a little bit. When it comes to the office of deacon, uh, it is, I think, much harder to trace its presence throughout the whole Bible. 
Uh, if you were to go back and look in the Old Testament, uh, the concept and the presence of elders is, is pretty much everywhere. And there are whole chapters, especially in the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 34 would be a great example where whole chapters are given over to speaking to the overseers. Uh, but you don't have quite that kind of specificity in the Old Testament. And even when we come to the New Testament, uh, it's much more silent on this office of deacon. And yet I want to show you that even though it's perhaps more silent, the substance of this office is all over the Bible. So first what I want us to see here is just when we, we look at what does the Bible actually say, when we come to Philippians, one of the letters that Paul wrote to one of the early churches, the very first verse, when Paul um, greets that congregation, he says, uh, I'm Paul and I'm writing to you, the saints in Philippi together with all the overseers and deacons. Now, hang with me. That letter was probably written uh, in the late 50s of the first century, maybe the early 60s, which is right around the time the book of Acts was written. Now what that tells us is within 20 years or so of Jesus' death and resurrection, the presence of the office of elder and the office of deacon is already so established that when Paul writes to this church that he planted, these offices are known and present in the life of that church. That's the first thing I want you to see here. And yet, what is this office? Uh, how did it develop? And that's why I want to go to Acts chapter 6. Because there's actually a lot of debate among Bible scholars about whether or not what we read about here in Acts chapter 6, this situation, and in particular, the appointing of these seven men to address the needs of the widows among the Christian community here in Jerusalem, is this where the office of deacon really begins or not? And part of the debate orbits around the fact that the term deacon doesn't appear in this passage. And yet, how I would like for us to think about this is to think of this passage as a prototype for the office of deacon. Think of it as, here is a very early instance in the life of the church that called for what the office of deacon is intended to do. And in fact, as a result of this situation, the office of deacon becomes normalized into the ebb and flow and normal life of the church. And so what do we see happen here? First of all, notice the situation in verse 1. In those days, the church is growing in number, and yet there is a complaint by the Hellenists. Who were the Hellenists? Think of the Hellenists as Greek-speaking Jews living in Jerusalem. And then you had the Hebrews, who were probably Aramaic-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, here we have a conflict that the widows... And if, if you're all familiar with the Bible, it ought to jump off the page at you that the widows in the Bible uh, go along with 
the orphans and the widows and the sojourners. That is, that group of people among and living within God's people who are most vulnerable. So this is a passage about people in, in, the, in the, the life of God's people who are very vulnerable and need others to care for them and to look out for them and to champion their best interest. And some are noticing that the Hellenists, the widows who are Greek-speaking, are, are being neglected in the normal everyday well-being of the life of this community. And so, the 12, and this here, the 12 there is referring to the 12 apostles. They gather everyone together, and they propose a solution. And there are two takeaways I want us to draw out from this passage that are incredibly important for the church today. And the first is this. Notice in verse 2, when the, the twelve say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And you look down again in verse 4, the, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, there's one way of reading this. You could think, oh man, the apostles just don't want to get their hands dirty. You know, they, they, they don't want to have to deal with the people that they don't want to have to deal with. That, that's really not at all what they're saying. What they're saying here is they were doing this already. But you notice in verse 1, the church is growing. And if they continue to try to keep up with the need, the physical material needs of the people, they will actually not have time to preach the word of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so they say, we need help. This is so important that we care for the people in the community that God is bringing together. We need to figure out a way to do this and to do it well. And so, here is where we get the idea of a division of labor in the life of the church. The, ne- the necessity of word ministry and deed ministry. And we talked about this a year ago when we looked at our vision how, do, how are we going to pursue our vision here in Birmingham? And what we say is through gospel ministry in what? In word and deed. And here's the thing. It is a both and. It is not an either or. I never want us to be a church that thinks we have to pick. I want us to live in the, the exciting, though very challenging tension of how do we do both of these things really well. And some of you, it'll feel like sometimes, man, it feels like we're, uh, are we becoming a social justice church? Are we focusing too much on issues of mercy? Some of you might end up feeling like we're not doing that enough. And you know what? I hope that's always how some of us feel. Because it is a both and calling. And it comes from this text right here. That's the first takeaway from this passage. But the second one, notice here in verse 3. The apostles say, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Now you might not remember this from last week, but one of the things that we noticed is we saw a transition in the pages of New Testament from the apostles to the overseers. 
And one of the primary things we saw Paul doing and also directing Timothy and Titus to do was wherever they went, they were to appoint elders or overseers in all the cities where there were churches. Now here, I want you to notice something that is brought together. The apostles are telling the community of God's people to pick out from among themselves people who will carry out this office and then the apostles will install them or appoint them and lay hands on them. Here's what I want you to hear. There is a right and a privilege that you as a congregation have to select your own leaders. I cannot impose on you leaders. Your elders cannot impose on you leaders. It is your privilege and responsibility to engage in the thoughtful, prayerful activity of selecting your own leaders. I hope that, on the one hand, is really encouraging to you, that the scriptures give you that privilege and responsibility. And I also hope it's somewhat weighty. It's, it's a sober thing for you as a, as a people, as a congregation, to look at somebody else and say and, that I would be willing to follow that person. I would be willing to yield to their leadership. And yet, that's a responsibility that you have. So these are the two takeaways, the division of labor and also the privilege of the congregation to select their leaders. And as I've said, this passage is a prototype to the office of deacon, to its origin. But I actually want to go a bit deeper. And I want you to think about the true origin of this office going to the very heart of the Bible, particularly God's heart for the poor and the needy, the vulnerable. When you read the Old Testament and when you enter into the New Testament, a consistent theme is God has a heart for the poor and the vulnerable, the needy. And how has he revealed that the most clearly? He has revealed his heart for the poor and the needy and the vulnerable in Jesus. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, every single human being is impoverished. And that impoverishment takes on all kinds of flavors. But where that impoverishment, that poverty, that vulnerability, that need is materially emotionally, spiritually, physically present in the life of God's people, he wants us to care for that. He wants us to look out for it, to be prepared for it. And Jesus is the true origin of the office of deacon. Think of it like this. Jesus is the true deacon. Why do I say that? Well, let me point out a couple passages. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says to his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The term there, serve, is is the term from which we get deacon. Or, let's 
Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 27. Jesus is talking to his disciples about their question of who's the greatest among them. And so Jesus says, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And I think you're intended here, I want you to see, Acts chapter 6 is about serving tables, the practical needs of God's people. And Jesus is here saying, who's greater, the one who reclines at the table, that is, who's being served, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? I think that's the obvious question. But then Jesus says, but I, I am among you as the one who serves. Again, the same term from which we get deacon is used here of Jesus. And then in Philippians chapter 2, Paul himself says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You know, we talk about Jesus as the good shepherd a lot. But I want you to think about Jesus as the true deacon. That when it comes to this office, and we are trying to decide and figure out what does it look like to be a deacon, to serve. And that's hard. It's not a, it's not a blueprint. It's not a formula. It's not a five-step uh, equation. It's about embodying and taking into our very lives the character of Jesus. And that's especially true for those that we would select to serve as deacons. And so, if the origin of the office of deacon is really derived from Jesus, what are the qualifications? Let's look then at 1 Timothy 3 to unpack that a little bit. And I want you to notice here, when we come to 1 Timothy 3... Right before this, you'll notice in verse 8, it says, deacons likewise. In other words, there's a very, very close connection between these qualifications for the office of deacon and those that came before in this passage, which were about the elder. And what do we notice here? The deacon, he must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They have to hold the faith with a clear conscience. They need to be tested. Uh, they need to have a household that reflects a maturity and character that can carry over into the life of the church. Now, at, at first, I hope what you're noticing, or at least it's, it's dawning on you, that these seem very similar to the qualifications that we looked at last week for the office of elder. And why is that? Why are the qualifications for these two offices so similar? And I think the answer for that is to remember, who do these offices resemble? Or another way to put it is, from whom do these offices derive? And the answer to that, again, is that these two offices derive from Jesus. And therefore, they are very similar in terms of the character and qualifications needed to fulfill this office. And, and let me say, too, this is why it's so important for elders and deacons to be tested, uh, to be approved, because what are they doing? 
In a very real sense, these offices are Jesus' way of being present in your life by the power of his spirit through his chosen officers that have been chosen by his people. And therefore, when officers fail to live up to and carry out their office as it is intended and designed to be, be accomplished, what does it do? It undermines Jesus. It tarnishes the honor and glory and character of Jesus among his people. Now, I stand here as an elder, and I have to tell you, it's, it's really hard to stand up here and say that. Because you have no idea. None of you know what I know about my own heart. And I, every day, I know that I, I do not give Jesus a good name. But here's the thing. Jesus, how to say this? Jesus doesn't need perfect officers to live among his people for him to be glorified and honored. What does he need? He needs repenting officers. He needs officers who are quick to repent, who are quick to forgive, who are quick to admit they need help from you. That there are gifts and abilities in this congregation that I don't have, that our other elders and deacons don't have, but you do. Jesus needs repenting officers. He doesn't need perfect officers. And that there's a world difference there. Because perfect officers don't exist. And if we think we need perfect officers, we are setting ourselves up for one thing that cannot happen, and we're setting ourselves up for a culture of leadership that in the end will self-destruct. But if we have a culture of leadership where we have leaders who are, are repenting followers of Jesus, that's powerful. That would be the presence of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus, coursing through our community together. So let's look at these briefly, some of these qualifications that though similar to the office of, of the elder are specifically here mentioned for the diaconate, the deacon. First of all, look in verse 8. He gives a number of things here. First of all, he, he makes a positive statement about a deacon must be dignified. That is respectable. But how? What is a dignified, respectable life look like? And he actually helps to spell this out by giving several negative examples. He says, by not being double-tongued. What does that mean? Well, a forked-tongue person. A person who says one thing and does another. Or says one thing to one person and then shades it or change it to another person. In other words, is, does this person, when they speak, are their words reliable? Are they trustworthy? Can they handle sensitive information? Do they know when to speak and when not to speak? Not double-tongued, but then also not addicted to much wine. And we looked about this last week for the Office of Elder. Why does he pick that? Well, think of it like this. 
The way a person handles what they drink, what they eat, is probably one of the clearest indicators of self-control in a person's life. Not the only, but it is definitely a clear one. And having self-control is one of the one of the chief fruits of the Spirit. How can you tell if a person's life has been changed from the inside out and the Spirit of God is at work in their lives? Watch how they handle alcohol. Watch how they handle food. Watch how they handle things that can capture the heart and become so important that you can't possibly think of living without them. Not addicted to much wine, but then also not being greedy for dishonest gain. The office of deacon is an office that in many ways gets into the details and the particulars of people's lives. And sometimes that involves finances. And deacons need to be the kinds of people who will not take advantage of the vulnerable financially. Who can be trusted with the money that God's people give to care for the poor and the vulnerable and the the needy in their midst. So in other words, dignified behavior, having self-control or self-mastery, as we said last week, in the areas of speech, food and alcohol, and in our attitude towards money. That's the first one. The second one here, in verse 9, notice he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, while deacons are not necessarily required to be able to teach, they need to understand what God has revealed in Jesus. And to Believe that and hold it with a clear conscience. What does that mean? Think of it like this. A deacon's private life must match his public life. A clear conscience. That what they say they believe and how they live need to align. But third, a deacon needs to be tested and approved. Look in verse 10. Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. If I could put this into a a, a similar category to the office of elder, this is where a similar idea that a deacon probably shouldn't be a new convert, a new Christian. There needs to be time for a person to grow and mature and develop, particularly in what is it like to love people? sacrificially. What is it like to love people when that love is not reciprocated? And you begin to really feel how hard it is to forgive, how costly it is to forgive. And yet, you can't help it because Jesus suffered and died so that you might be forgiven. That takes time. That's not easy. Tested and approved. But also, fourth here, an irreproachable home life. Look in verse 11, 12. Therefore, wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
And then similar to what we saw for the office of elder, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Now, I want to say right up front, verse 11, there's a lot of um, discussion around this verse, particularly in, in our denomination. Uh, and it goes because of this. And we're going to take a whole sermon next week to look at the issue of gender and office. So you can pray for me now. Um, and, but I just want to tip off where we're, why I'm not going to dive into this this week because it warrants more time than I can give in one sermon today. But here's the issue. When it says, their wives likewise, the term there that is translated wives is also in Greek, it's a term that can either mean wives or women. And depending on which you know, a commentator or scholar you read, there are different ways of understanding that. And I, I want to take some time next week to, to look at that in more depth. But for, for this week, let's just go with how th- this text is written. Because even if, even if we were to say uh, that this really does refer to women and, and the idea of deaconesses, um, it certainly wouldn't exclude the wives of deacons. And what I want us to see here is that really what's being said in verse 11, the office of deacon is a, requires teamwork. It requires a partnership. Whether verse 11 be, be talking about wives or whether it be talking about women in general in the church. That in both cases, women or wives that are being talked about here have to have the same qualifications and maturity that the men described in verses 8 through 10 need to have and then are then referred to in verse 12 through 13. And therefore, what I want us to look at again is, notice what is said in verse 4 and 5. Fidelity in marriage, faithfulness in marriage. And we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into it in any great depth, but just to remind you, why, again, why, does, why is marriage such a big deal when it comes to the offices in the church? And here's why. One, because Jesus refers to us as his bride. Furthermore, there, is, there are probably few more powerful ways to discern a deacon's qualifications for office than how he loves his family, how he cares for his wife. Because in the Bible, a marriage is a covenant. Can a man be trusted? Look at how he keeps his word to his bride. Because Jesus, when he talks about his bride... He kept his word to love her, though she was filthy and shameful and tarnished, and he gave his life for her. Fidelity in marriage. Second, the home management question. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. And I said last week, and I'll say it again, this pretty much disqualifies anybody if you have children. Uh, And it might disqualify you even if you don't, but especially if you do. And I, you know, I have been on my heels 
the two weeks that I've been marinating in this about managing my own household and just seeing all of the weaknesses and failing there. And yet, what I want you to see is why is this so important? Because, well, put it like this. Uh, I can't change my children. I cannot change their heart. I can't change your heart. I can't make you different. Parenting is bewildering. Um, I don't know what to do every day. That's a lot like being a deacon. That's a lot like being an elder. And the reason is because people are complicated, and that's beautiful. But it's never easy, it's never straightforward. And the reason I think house management is involved here, how you care for your children, is because that is a direct parallel to how you'll treat people in the church who may not listen to you, who may think you don't have much to offer, uh, who frankly blow you off. And like a parent, you can't walk away. They still need you to hang in there, to take the shots to pray for them, to love them anyway. So, so what? Let me, let me land this plane for you. Um, why would anybody consider this office? Let me give you a couple reasons here from verse 13. First of all, to gain a good standing. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean if you become a deacon... By doing that and the good works that come from it, you can earn a good standing with God, that you can earn your salvation. It's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about here is that to gain a good standing is really with with respect to the congregation. That a deacon becomes a substantial person in the life of this church who becomes uh, an example and a good example of what it means to love what God loves, to help other people in the church grow in caring for and loving other people the way that you've been loved in Jesus. But then also, you grow in confidence. And what kind of confidence? Well, one, I think it's pretty simple that when you serve as a deacon, and this is true even for an elder, you begin to see that it's possible to actually help people grow in Jesus' name. You begin to see, not all the time and not predictably, but you do see God's grace change people. And it is amazing. It's beautiful. And it's worth it. But secondly... That also helps build confidence in you that the gospel really is true. This isn't just pie in the sky, make believe. And third, we grow in confidence to speak words of good news into dark places that are aptly said, that are timely, and they're meaningful, and they actually make a difference. You see, Where I want you to leave you again is to remind you that this is what Jesus is like. This is how he is towards you every day. He is the true deacon. 
How can we have deacons like this? Well, we need together to look to Jesus and ask him for deacons like this. And not only that, that he would work in each of us hearts of service and love and compassion like this. Because that's how he has been towards each of you and towards me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these passages. Thank you for these offices. Thank you for how they physically and tangibly bring into the very normal and everyday realities of our lives the character of Jesus. Even though we are weak and failing in doing so, Lord Jesus, thank you for not leaving us alone, but giving us gifts that come out from from within our very community. And we ask that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to, to accept this responsibility, but also that you give us the wisdom and the courage to ask of some of us to serve in these ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.